You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Warning. Politics ahead. And for all who have criticized me for my progressive views on history, this episode should suffice to prove that history has always been a battleground for the culture war and is inextricable from political views, especially when one has a conscience. Over the last year, a conservative talking point has emerged that a new and dangerous kind of, quote, woke racism, end quote, originating from an arcane and supposedly nefarious ideological academic discipline called critical race theory, is being taught to children in schools, amounting to a kind of un-American indoctrination. If you've paid attention, this view has garnered a lot of traction and become a favorite grievance on the right, resulting in many local school board meetings devolving into a venue for the breathless protests of ill-informed parents. The result has been recent legislation in states like Oklahoma, Tennessee, Iowa, and Idaho, with Republican-controlled legislatures, banning the discussion of critical race theory, or CRT for short, in schools, a dreadful development indeed for free speech and academic freedom. As many have pointed out, though, CRT is not actually taught in public elementary or secondary schools. It's an approach to legal scholarship that emerged in academia in the 70s and 80s in which the inherent discrimination of public policies is analyzed with a view toward improving equity under the law. This scholarly subject has become the chief boogeyman to conservatives who conflate it with all efforts to address systemic racism and cultivate anti-racist views and approaches in various fields in both the public and private sector. In the wake of the George Floyd protests last year, many organizations began admirably 
to acknowledge the fact that the long history of racism in America may be present in their own administrations and bureaucracies, and to hold seminars and meetings to educate themselves about systemic racism and how they might be able to affect change within their domains. Of course, some fragile attendees at these meetings, when asked to examine the possibility that they may have benefited from privileges others are denied, balked and became defensive and suggested that such frank discussions of racism amounted to another kind of racism, one targeting them. Some even recorded their Zoom sessions, thinking of themselves as heroic whistleblowers on some new woke culture invading their safe spaces, and sent the footage to journalists to blow the whole thing wide open. Of course, one conservative journalist obliged. His name is Christopher Rufo, and he wrote a series of articles supposedly quote-unquote exposing these anti-bias seminars in Seattle, even though they were not closely held secrets or anything that the organizations who held them were embarrassed about. But Rufo believed he was uncovering a vast conspiracy. In the materials leaked to him, he unsurprisingly found references to some well-known books on anti-racism by authors like Ibram Kendi and others. And then, examining those books, he found further references to the legal scholarship of Kimberly Crenshaw, who originated critical race theory. Rufo shows his lack of experience in performing academic research in that, rather than understanding the nature of academic scholarship as a conversation between texts and authors over decades and centuries, in which supportive materials are cited to strengthen arguments, just as they would be by those who assert an opposing view, Rufo saw this as some kind of insidious conspiracy, fancying himself a kind of Robert Langdon, uncovering evil power structures through his rather cursory readings of a few works, all of whose points he seems to have missed entirely. Rufo believes that the perennial specter of Marxism lies at the root of critical race theory and all anti-racist activism, mostly because of some anti-capitalist comments made by certain of the authors frequently cited, who recognize that discriminatory public policies are deeply enmeshed in our economic system. But he entirely disregards the more obvious cultural basis of these works in the civil rights-era struggles of Martin Luther King Jr. and others. He proposes that this activism started in academia and is now deeply embedded in our bureaucracies, again taking a conspiratorial view, as if these anti-bias seminars were somehow foisted on unwilling organizations, rather than sought out by administrators who may actually agree there are deeply entrenched problems in our society that they don't want to be a part of. In Rufo's view, anti-racist activism, and by extension CRT, which he paints as the evil puppet master, is simply about overturning the system by humiliating and shaming white people. If he had actually managed to grasp the message of Ibram Kendi's work, though, he would understand that's not what anti-racism is about. Perhaps it would have been better if Rufo had read Kendi's simplification of anti-racism in the form of his children's book, Anti-Racist Baby, 
which spells out for still developing minds the fact that anti-racism is not, quote, reverse racism, end quote, a term which itself is wildly racist in that it suggests racial discrimination and bias is meant to be directed at only non-white people. Instead, as Kendi's children's book states, anti-racism celebrates our differences and identifies policies rather than people as the problem. But it's Kendi's suggestion that we use our words to actually talk about racism that seems to be the problem for Rufo and others. The backlash against critical race theory, which is actually a backlash against anti-racism activism generally, is at its heart a resistance to talking about racism at all. Think about it in terms of gun violence. In the aftermath of a mass shooting, there are calls to address the issue and talk about gun control. And there is always a resistance, suggesting now is not the time, when clearly there is no better time. After the George Floyd protests, now clearly is the time to talk about systemic racism. And the protests against teaching critical race theory are a clear attempt to squelch such conversations. Rufo recognized that critical race theory was the perfect term to spark conservative outrage, the word critical being inflammatory to defenders of the status quo, the word race being outrageous to those who refuse to recognize that they may have been born privileged because of the color of their skin, and the word theory suggesting that it is not fact and can therefore be vigorously refuted. Rufo and his views were welcomed onto Fox News Channel by Tucker Carlson, and his calls for the president to issue an executive order were answered by Trump, who signed an order co-authored by Rufo limiting speech about race in seminars delivered to federal employees. And this was just the beginning. Even though critical race theory is not taught in public schools, Rufo's activism has sparked a huge push from the right to ban it. And these laws, in effect, seem to outlaw the candid discussion of race in classrooms generally. The vague contours of some of these laws seem to suggest that classic literature that explicitly addresses racism, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man or Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, could be banned from English classrooms. Especially hard hit would be American history classes, for how can students and teachers honestly discuss colonialism, slavery, the decimation of Native American tribes, Jim Crow, the civil rights era, or really any aspect of American history without acknowledging and openly discussing racism. This legislation is little more than a ban on ideas, and it is not the first time that the classroom has become a theater in which to wage the culture war. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and as a teacher who openly discusses racism and systemic discrimination in the classroom in my effort to teach students critical thinking and moral argumentation, I think it's time I addressed this topic by examining curriculum controversies in America. Before we continue, I want to thank my newest patrons. Thanks, Aaron, Christopher, and Michael. And a special thanks to Counterfactual Canuck and John Knee 
for increasing their pledge amount. Also, thanks go out to Matthias, a one-time donor on PayPal. I really appreciate all my patron support. Listeners who pledge on patreon.com slash historicalblindness get an exclusive RSS link that will set up an ad-free feed of the show with teasers and exclusive episodes, like the blind spot episode I released about Typhoid Mary in October. We recently met one of my first patronage goals, which is very encouraging. If we manage to meet my next goal, I'll be well on the way to devoting more of my time to the podcast and hopefully producing more episodes. Patron feeds also get episodes early, at least a day early at the lowest tier of a dollar a month, and typically four days ahead of release at higher tiers. And as I mentioned, their episodes contain no ads in them. So if my mid-episode intermission or this Patreon pitch takes you out of the story, pledge support and get rid of the ad breaks by visiting patreon.com slash historicalblindness. You can also support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. To suggest that the current furor over discussing systemic racism with students in the classroom originated with Rufo's conspiracist view of critical race theory would be to turn a blind eye to the fact that he is capitalizing on long-standing sentiments among conservatives that liberals control academia, when in fact, perhaps, progressive ideas just stand up better to scholarly scrutiny that the history of America is being distorted and falsified by the left, when in fact historical revision to achieve better accuracy and understanding is a central tenet of historical research, without which we may today still believe falsehoods, like that women executed in 17th century Salem really were Satan-worshipping sorceresses, and that changes to elementary and high school curricula represent indoctrination when it actually represents efforts to improve education and prepare students for the academic rigor of college, which will in turn help them succeed in life and become better citizens generally. It's pretty hard to indoctrinate through the teaching of critical thinking, which is what lies at the core of historical revision and recent changes in curricula, and which serves as the foundation of all efforts to recognize the systemic racism that has been ignored or denied for so long. As I try to emphasize in this podcast, critical thinking encourages every individual to analyze and evaluate received information, to sift through it for falsehoods and errors in logic and reason, and to try to achieve a more perfect understanding of the truth as far as it can be discerned. This is something that even conspiracy theorists and denialists claim to value. For example, take Glenn Beck, currently a vocal opponent of what he calls critical race theory in schools, which again seems to just be any acknowledgement of racism's existence and the systemic preservation of privileges for some and not others. He likes to encourage critical thinking too. Critical thinking 
Critical thinking clarifies goals, examines exa um, assumptions, discerns hidden values, evaluates evidence, accomplishes actions, and assesses conclusions. That's what critical thinking does. That's what we do on this program. However, when he disagrees with where critical thinking leads students, he calls it indoctrination. Do you know where your, where your children are and what they're learning? You should. There's a concerted effort now to indoctrinate your children with a progressive propaganda agenda, and it's going on right now, and it is everywhere. Many of our nation's schools are now hitting kids with a full progressive assault. In fact, back in 2012, ridiculously enough, the Republican Party of Texas actually made opposition to critical thinking a plank in their platform. When this resulted in controversy, they tried to claim that they actually only opposed a specific teaching approach called outcome-based education, which they argued was simply relabeled as higher-order thinking and critical thinking. Here again, they rely on the argument that a relabeling has occurred, just as they say anti-bias training and anti-racism activism is actually repackaged critical race theory, which is really Marxism, they'll say. But the Texas GOP platform was clear about what they found offensive in critical and higher-order thinking skills, that they, quote, have the purpose of challenging the students' fixed beliefs, end quote. So already we see the aversion to having students exposed to what they view as ideas that may challenge the status quo. The political battle over how history is taught itself has a long history. Before the uproar over anti-racist approaches to education and so-called critical race theory, there was outrage over the New York Times 1619 project, which sought to place slavery and its effects at the center of our understanding of America's founding and subsequent history. In response to this series of publications, the Trump administration even founded a commission to defend a more traditionalist view of American history, to denounce progressivism in education as indoctrination, and to promote, quote, patriotic education, end quote, despite the fact that it is not the federal government's place to control instructional programs or curriculum. However, the controversy over the 1619 Project deserves an entire episode, or at least a minisode, in its own right. So suffice it to say here that Christopher Rufo was latching onto this controversy when he conjured the specter of CRT. This more recent controversy over approaches to the teaching of American history echoes the controversy over national history standards in the mid-1990s. In the fall of 1994, former Vice President Dick Cheney's wife, Lynn Cheney, who served as the chair for the National Endowment of the Humanities, sparked a lengthy political controversy by writing a rebuke of the forthcoming national standards which her organization had funded, developed by the National Center for History in Schools at UCLA, which again, her organization had chosen for the task. Her central complaints which were thereafter parroted by conservative talk radio hosts, talking heads, and politicians, were that the new standards focused 
too much on injustices related to race and gender and not enough on the traditional hero worship of former textbooks. It was all so negative, she whined. And she even resorted to scorekeeping, counting the number of times that McCarthyism and the Ku Klux Klan were mentioned and bemoaning that Alexander Graham Bell and the Wright brothers didn't receive equal page space. While critics derided the proposed standards as an example of political correctness run amok, historians defended them as rigorous and dismissed the backlash as a reactionary attack on modern historical scholarship, which had for some time sought to bring the marginalized and underrepresented further into focus and do away with insupportable myths about our country. In the end, though, since these were just voluntary standards, and since most of the complaints stemmed from the numerous teaching examples provided, which were confused for curriculum, and not from the actual standards themselves, whose criteria were universally praised, a few simple revisions sufficed to appease the detractors and dampen the fires of controversy. Now for a brief intermission. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello, I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called Our Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest. And I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of urhador suglin an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, back to the show. Curriculum controversies have not been exclusive to history either. One of the most egregious examples of political scrimmage over teaching materials centered on literature reading lists. The story of the Kanaha County Textbook War sounds extremely similar to the protests seen this year in school board meetings. In April 1974, the Board of Education assembled in this West Virginia county to discuss how they would meet a mandate to include in their curriculum, quote, multi-ethnic and multi-racial literature, end quote. One board member, Alice Moore, who had campaigned for her seat by protesting sex education, a curriculum controversy that has been consistent and ubiquitous in its own right, seems to have seen in the new lit curriculum another opportunity for outrage. She found the poetry of E.E. E. Cummings pornographic, the writings of Sigmund Freud atheistic, the autobiography of Malcolm X un-American, and generally complained that works by black authors like James Baldwin were too depressing in their description of life in the ghettos. Quote, textbooks should show life as it should be, she argued not life as it is, end quote. Her rhetoric inflamed the resentments of parents who boycotted county schools. Thousands marched in protest against these, quote, dirty books, end quote. They circulated pamphlets that claimed the new reading material contained sexually explicit passages, but these assertions proved to be false. In fact, unsurprisingly, Neither Alice Moore nor any of her followers had read the literature they were railing against, which they openly admitted, claiming that they didn't need to subject themselves to such radical propaganda to know it was harmful. The protests quickly turned violent. Property was destroyed as protesters shot firearms at empty school buses and firebombed an empty school building. They even set off dynamite at the district offices beatings and shootings occurred, board meetings broke out into riots, and people were arrested. And not only the violent protesters, Alice Moore managed to get other school board members arrested for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Even though the violence eventually subsided and the books being protested were added to the curriculum, this conservative terrorism accomplished somewhat the outcome desired it had a definite chilling effect on academic freedom and freedom of speech in the classroom. As for some time afterward, 
teachers censored themselves for fear of stoking controversy, avoiding potentially divisive books like 1984, and even skipping over biology lessons about animal reproduction for fear that it came too close to sex education. At the time, Alice Moore presented herself as just a concerned parent, but since, historians have suggested that she was more of a right-wing provocateur with connections to other organizations that had been protesting progressive curriculum since the 1960s, including the Christian Crusade, which focused on removing sex education from schools, and even that far-right anti-communist group who saw socialist conspiracies everywhere, including in curriculum that they believed was little more than Marxist indoctrination. Our old friends, the John Birch Society. Now we'll teach you how to spot them in the cities or the sticks, for even old Zanesville is just full of Bolsheviks. The CIA subverted it. And so's the FCC. There's no one left but thee and we. And we're not sure of thee. Oh, we're the John Birch Society, the John Birch Society, here to save our country from a communistic plot. Join the John Birch Society, holding off the Reds. We'll use our hands and hearts, and if we must, we'll use our heads. Protest to progressive curriculum as communist indoctrination was unsurprisingly common during the second Red Scare in the era of McCarthyism. Indeed, the House Un-American Activities Committee, well known for its investigation of Hollywood, which resulted in so many careers ruined because of blacklisting, also went after teachers that they suspected of indoctrinating youth. In 1959, the HUAC planned to hold one of its dreaded hearings in San Francisco, California, where it subpoenaed dozens of teachers. In response, local college professors organized San Franciscans for Academic Freedom and Education, or SAFE, and solicited a broad base of bipartisan support, even among moderate and conservative organizations, on the grounds that the federal government has no place in controlling local education. This public resistance led to the HUAC canceling its hearings for the first time, but they came back the next year with a new spate of subpoenas. They were met by thousands of demonstrators representing a wide range of San Francisco society, including students, politicians, and other activists in a significant protest movement that prefigured the anti-war protest movement of the 1960s. The response of authorities on the second day of the protest was much the same as would be encountered in later years as well, with truncheons and fire hoses wielded against the protesters. But on the third day, some 5,000 protesters marched in downtown San Francisco and this display helped to encourage nationwide opposition to the HUAC, whose spell of fear over the country was finally breaking. The absurdly paranoid John Birch Society and the witch-hunting HUAC were not the only groups to fear the creeping influence of Marxist thought into classrooms. 
One organization was the Veterans Association, the American Legion, which had for decades made it their mission to criticize and reject any textbooks they found to be, quote, un-American, end quote. One major target of the American Legion was the work of Harold Rugg, whose social studies textbook series, Man and His Changing Society, sought to highlight both the strengths and the weaknesses of America in order to demonstrate to younger generations where social change may be beneficial. The books sold widely and were adopted in many school districts, becoming a standard for years. However, the encouragement of change was viewed suspiciously, and the depiction of America as anything less than perfect was seen as unpatriotic. In the mid-1930s, some parents complained that they were communistic, and during World War II, the controversy expanded to the point that the books were being derided as treasonous propaganda. In fact, the books simply encouraged students to think critically about social problems and come to their own conclusions. Familiarly, protesters gleefully condemned the books without having bothered to read them, saying that they didn't need to read them because they had heard all they needed to hear about the author. After enough sustained controversy, school administrators banned the texts in many districts despite their admiration for them, simply because they did not want to deal with the anti-communist crusaders, and not content to see Rugg's books simply removed from the schools, the protesters, Nazi-like, held numerous public book burnings. This controversy did more than just remove and destroy Rugg's books. It set back progressive education decades, as for years afterward, other textbook authors shied away from addressing social issues and avoided any implication that America could improve in any way. This inclination among many on the right to desire a whitewashing of America and our history finds its apotheosis in the efforts of the United Daughters of the Confederacy to recast the history of the South and promulgate the lost cause myth that I spoke about in my episode, Jubal Early's Lost Cause. The United Daughters of the Confederacy are perhaps best known today for their efforts to erect monuments to white supremacists, monuments regularly targeted by racial justice advocates who continue working to get them removed. To those who might protest that Confederate monuments aren't monuments to white supremacists, first I would point out that in 1926, the United Daughters of the Confederacy actually erected a monument to the Ku Klux Klan in Concord, North Carolina. But that blatant evidence aside, any who might protest that a monument to the Confederacy or its leaders does not itself represent a monument to white supremacy has accepted the false notion of the lost cause myth that the South was fighting for anything other than a social order based entirely on the patrician rule of elite white families over the poor and their exploitation of black chattel slaves as forced labor. I have refuted the myth of the lost cause before and won't retread the same ground here, but suffice it to say 
that the success of the lost cause myth, the reason it is still so commonly repeated today, can be attributed to the efforts of the United Daughters of the Confederacy to remove textbooks they felt portrayed the Southern cause in a negative light and install curriculum that exalted the South and distorted the truth about the war and about slavery. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, or the UDC, took up their crusade to indoctrinate Southern youth with the myth of the lost cause from other organizations, namely the United Confederate Veterans and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, who in the 1890s balked at the portrayal of Southern planters and the Confederacy in histories written by Northern writers which understandably condemned their treatment of slaves and their entire economic and social system, and further blamed them for the war. Motivated by their desire to maintain the dominance of patrician families in the post-bellum South, they undertook a campaign to systematically vindicate themselves through propaganda and indoctrination. They removed Northern textbooks from their schools, accusing even the Encyclopedia Britannica of malicious distortion, and then wrote, published, and installed their own history texts onto school bookshelves. Their books, and others afterward promoted by the UDC, maintained the idea that the Confederacy did not secede in order to preserve the slavery on which their economy and social hierarchy was built, but rather because of dignified and honorable ideals like state sovereignty. And more than this, they perpetuated the even older lies that slave owners were, quote, kind and lenient, end quote, to their slaves, and that, quote, they in turn loved their master, end quote. They even went so far as to suggest that without the guidance of an overseer, slaves would have turned to cannibalism, which they claimed was their natural tendency in Africa. Meanwhile, they glorified white Southerners, describing the idyllic mansions of the plantation system and calling it, quote, a civilization that gave us brave and true men and pure and noble women, end quote. The taking up of the cause to indoctrinate Southern youth with these ideas was the natural evolution of the UDC's efforts to memorialize the Confederacy. Rather than just inanimate statues, they sought to create, quote, living monuments, end quote, as historian Karen Cox put it. And their campaign was extremely effective. Beyond expunging history textbooks they disliked and getting Confederate-friendly texts adopted, they went after teachers and administrators who resisted and drove them out of schools. They sponsored essay contests that required students to use their texts. They filled the schools with teachers from among their own ranks, and they composed lesson plans for the rest. They put up portraits of Confederate figures in the schools, hung Confederate battle flags in classrooms, and even petitioned to have schools named after Confederate quote-unquote heroes. Perhaps most disturbingly, like the formation of the Nazi youth, the UDC organized Children of the Confederacy Auxiliaries, 
grooming the kids for later membership in the UDC and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, having the children themselves cut the cord to unveil each new monument. This is what we must fear when conservative voices protest progressive curriculum. They will cry indoctrination, but true to their nature, it is just projection, for what they really object to is any challenge to the status quo. They recognize that a progressive curriculum prevents them from propagandizing in schools and brainwashing young minds. Those who protest anti-racist approaches to education, or what they have been told is critical race theory, inevitably resort to the criticism that progressive curriculum is itself biased or even racist. However, the lessons they protest often involve just the simple acknowledgement of racism's continued existence or any encouragement for students to openly discuss and analyze disparities in representation and the systems of privilege at work in the world. Any calls for fairness or teaching both sides may seem reasonable, but you must consider what they're saying. Even the United Daughters of the Confederacy claimed to want quote-unquote impartial history. But how is it edifying or moral to give equal time and emphasis to a point of view that exonerates and exalts white supremacy? The entire notion of quote, teaching the controversy, end quote, is always only a demand that inarguable or harmful ideas be unduly recognized or accorded merit they do not possess. Take the idea of, quote, creation science, end quote. It was not taught in science classrooms because it is not science. There is not controversy about it among actual scientists. Christian fundamentalists only attempted to portray evolution as controversial in order to put religion in science classrooms. Likewise, today, opponents of CRT argue that equal time must be awarded to any opposing view when it comes to racism in society and history. This has led to suggestions that any lesson on the Holocaust, for example, may need to be balanced with equal time given to Holocaust denial. The simple fact is that not all controversies have two equal sides, and hate should not be presented to children as an acceptable view to take. And the entire notion that teaching about racism is biased doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Trends in progressive curriculum, which as I've shown are not new, actually are an effort to redress cultural bias and one-sidedness in education, acquainting students with the experiences of underrepresented and marginalized groups that have previously been excluded from textbooks. To claim this inclusion is biased or exclusionary is exactly the same as refusing to explicitly acknowledge that black lives matter and instead insisting only on repeating that all lives do. It reveals a fundamental racist aversion to recognizing the struggles of any group 
other than one's own. Thanks for listening to this episode of Historical Blindness. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane, Robert, Joe, Evelyn, Joe E., Devlin, Ian, Jessica, Fred, Robin, Mateo, Myth Eater, Do More Kid, Emily, Katie, Elizabeth, and Terry. Some may say that I attempt to indoctrinate my listeners, but you know the difference. I engage in critical thought and I encourage all of you to do likewise. Remember to check out my sources on the blog posts I publish after each episode. Some music on this episode is copyright Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel and from Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or by signing up for a 14-day trial of The Great Courses Plus at my custom URL. Find those links in the show notes. You can also make one-time donations to support this podcast on the website or at the PayPal link in the show notes. Until next time, remember, history and critical thought about it is our most important tool for addressing social problems. And whitewashing it is the principal strategy for preserving social evils. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.